Mark chapter 15, do verses 40, and we're going to go all the way down through 16.8, and we'll be concluding our adventure through Mark today. We, we begun over a year ago now, and today it comes to a close, and what an adventure it has been. And so for those of you that read ahead and try to get ready for uh, the next week's sermon this week, uh, you can read Micah is where we're going to go next week, and that should be a bit of an adventure as well. Uh, I'm uh, excited and a little bit nervous about that one. It should be intense. Anyhow, Mark chapter 15, verse 40, through chapter 16, verse 8. Death is the destiny of every man. All men and women die. All of us have or will feel the pain of bidding farewell to loved ones. Loss is a, a powerful part of the human experience, and it, in a way, it, it binds us all together. We know that no one gets out alive. One out of one people die. There are no happy endings. There is no happily ever after. And nobody knows when their time will be up. This year, well, it could be your year. This week, could be your week. Today could be your day. Death comes for us all, and it is final. So be encouraged. I'll see everyone next week. No, death is certain, but Christianity makes a startling claim. We make the claim that death is not the end. Christians believe that we are raised bodily from the grave to live happily ever after with the Lord Jesus Christ. We hold this strange truth not because it makes us feel better, but because it's what Jesus himself taught and what Jesus himself accomplished. We believe that Jesus was crucified, dead, buried, and that he is resurrected. We believe that Jesus lives. That's the main idea today, that Jesus rose from the dead, that Jesus is alive. And because Jesus is alive, if we place our faith in him, we can live happily ever after with God. The good news of the gospel it has a happy ending, and it's the story underneath all of other stories tells us that we do have meaning, we do have significance, and those longings within us for eternal life, for peace, for love and relationships, for perfect justice, well, they're not misplaced. But they find their fulfillment in Christ alone. As a result of this, my exhortation to you this morning will be to believe and live happily ever after going to work through this section in three parts because that's what good Baptists do. We're going to talk about the ending, then we will see the secret disciples, and then we'll talk about the surprised disciples. Before we get started, though, as is our custom, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word, and we ask that in listening to it that we would go beyond hearing the voice of a mere man to hearing from you. Ask that you would help us to think rightly, to feel deeply, and to respond appropriately. 
Help us to encounter you together now. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's talk about this ending. If you're perceptive, you recognize that I said we're going to be finishing today at 16, verse 8. But there at the end of the book, there are verses 9 through 20. And so maybe you've asked yourself, what is going on? Is, is he punting on those verses? What's, what's happening? And, and I'm not punting. They just simply aren't part of Mark's gospel. And I think the easiest way to explain this is that verses 9 through 20 are not found in the oldest and most reliable manuscripts. And so consequently, they're not part of Mark's original gospel. Uh, that these verses should not be part of Mark's gospel isn't really disputed. It's affirmed by the most liberal and the most conservative scholars alike. And so in, in addition to, to further this point, not showing it doesn't show up until rather later, uh, and we're talking 5th, 6th, 7th century. Um, in verses 9 through 20, they're also uncommented on by the church fathers, and so they're unknown among the early church. And, and further, they depart from Mark's grammar, his vocabulary, and his style, which is why in almost every translation of the Bible, and likely the one that you're holding there, there's a big gap between verse 8 and verse 9. And there's those little brackets, they, some, they say something to the effect of, these verses do not show up in the earliest and best manuscripts. And if you have a study Bible, there's also likely a footnote there that does some explaining about how the science of textual criticism works and offers some short statements about the verses themselves, which are in no way heretical. They don't contradict any Christian teachings, and they are in every way consistent with other parts of the Bible. And so the question arises, how did they get here? Why are they hear, and I think the easiest or the best answer is this, that because Mark's, Mark's ending is surprising, Mark ends almost mid-sentence. It's my contention that he intends to do so. His ending seems incomplete, and so in an attempt to shore up our understanding of the story of Jesus, early Christian copyists added these verses to try and give Mark's gospel a more suitable and usual conclusion. And the verses are actually built, they've been compiled from the other gospels and other information in the New Testament. And so they feature familiar things like the Great Commission and Jesus appearing to the disciples on the road to Emmaus. It would have been quite helpful, actually, if you think about the gospel of Mark is all you have. It would have been helpful to have some of these summary remarks from, that, that have been added on here. So I, th- I think the best way to think of them is like an appendix or a commentary on Mark's gospel. It's helpful information, but it's not the inspired word of God. It doesn't reflect that which was in the original autographs. It doesn't reflect that which was in Mark's gospel when he wrote it down. This is actually one of two big insertions that we are aware of that textual critics have done the hard work of of discovering for us to make sure that we can have with supreme confidence the word of God in our hands. Uh, The other is John 7, 53 through 8, 11. Uh, both of them have made our way into, their, into our Bibles because of both their history and their helpfulness. Both are good, but, but neither are, are inspired. Um, and I am thankful for the men and women who have devoted themselves to tirelessly studying the thousands and thousands of biblical manuscripts so that we can read our Bibles with complete confidence that they contain the very words of God. And textual criticism is a wonderful discipline that enables us to know that we can trust our Bibles. And so this appendix or commentary that appears affixed to the end of Mark's gospel, it ought not cause you any discomfort. It's nothing new. We've we've been aware of it for uh, millennia now. 
shouldn't cause you any discomfort about the trustworthiness of the scriptures, but instead actually increase your trust in the scriptures. It should allow you to trust them more because it shows you the lengths to which people have gone to ensure what you, what you have in front of you is God's word. They're telling you when we're unsure. We've encountered this in smaller sections where it's a verse, you, you know, it goes from, instead of going 9, 10, 11, it goes from 9 to 11. And we've said, hey, this verse doesn't appear in the earliest and best manuscripts. And so we've compared thousands and thousands and thousands of them and decided, hey, this wasn't here. It was added later for clarification. So at any rate, not part of Mark's ending. And uh, if I have aroused within you a great thirst for further conversation and discussion about textual criticism, uh, you can catch me after service or at Bible study during the week, and I will attempt to do my best to slake that thirst. But that's not our purpose here this morning. Our purpose here this morning is to consider the end of Mark's gospel. Mark ends his gospel at verse 8 because it is what he wanted his ending makes clear just how remarkable and how surprising the resurrection really is. The disciples of Jesus, well, they weren't expecting a resurrection. They are stunned. They are frightened by his resurrection. Dead men do not rise. And Jesus was dead. And so we look at verse 42 to confirm this fact. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council who was himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that Jesus was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph, and Joseph bought a linen shroud. Taking him down, wrapped him in a linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled the stone against the entrance of the tomb. This is surprising. This text is full of surprises. The person who asks for the body of Jesus so that Jesus can have a proper burial instead of being left on the cross to rot and be eaten by scavengers before being thrown into a mass grave, as was the normal pattern. The person that spares Jesus' body from this degradation, it's, it's not Peter, it's not John, it's not one of the twelve, but a prominent member of the Sanhedrin, the group that had condemned Jesus to death. Luke tells us that uh, indeed, Joseph did not vote in favor of that motion, but he was a part of that group. And he is the one who asks for Jesus' body. This Joseph of Arimathea is described as a man who was looking for the kingdom of God. He is a man, we learn from Matthew's account, that had become a secret disciple of Jesus, but whose faith is now made public. As he, along with Nicodemus, who John 19 informs us as another secret disciple, lays Jesus' body to rest. Joseph, by requesting Jesus' body, and Nicodemus, by helping prepare his body for burial with the spices, they reveal themselves to be followers of Jesus. And so three observations here. First, Jesus has disciples everywhere. Even among the Sanhedrin, who had called for his death. 
Jesus had sought and found his people. This is still true. Jesus has disciples everywhere. Some who persist in secrecy until the Holy Spirit forces them out of anonymity, and some who wait to hear the gospel that they might believe. One thinks of Paul staying in Corinth after he had been opposed and reviled by them. God encourages him to stay in Acts 18.9 when he says, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack or harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. God's people are everywhere. There are many to be saved in that city despite all appearances to the contrary. I think too of Paul's final uh, word to the Philippians wherein he says this in chapter 4 verse 22. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. I mean, even among the household of the church's greatest persecutor, There existed followers of Jesus. This is still true. Jesus has disciples everywhere. Some who persist in secrecy until the Holy Spirit forces them out of anonymity and some who wait to hear the gospel that they might believe. I wonder who is waiting for you to preach the gospel to them that they might believe. Where might you give money to help send someone to preach the gospel to a people who have yet to hear it. How might you further the kingdom of God? Jesus has people everywhere. He has people here in the United States. He has people in the Congo. He has believers and followers. He has disciples in China. He has them among other religions, among Buddhists and Hindus and Muslims and followers of the Islamic State. Jesus has people everywhere. I mean, look at Paul himself, persecutor of the church, saved by Christ. This fact should thrill us because it shows us the power of God to save anyone. Anybody can be a disciple. It also demonstrates the importance of the mission that God has entrusted to his church. He has tasked us, friends, with making disciples of all nations. He has tasked us with sharing the gospel in our community and equipping others to do the same around the world. Second observation is that true disciples go public. What I mean is that that genuine followers of Jesus cannot remain hidden. Christian devotion to Jesus requires being identified with him and with his people. Joseph and Nicodemus, they reveal their love for Jesus by courageously caring for his body after death. Genuine discipleship cannot remain secret, but must become public by identifying with Jesus. The the way we do this now is by committing ourselves to Christ through baptism into his church, and then we renew that covenant that we make at baptism with one another by participating in the Lord's Supper together. I think one of the many reasons that authentic discipleship cannot remain secret is that it requires an approach to Christianity that is decidedly unchristian. There's no such thing as private Christianity. There's no such thing as just Jesus and me. Following Jesus is intensely personal, but it's never private. It's intensely personal, and it's also intensely communal. 
When we come to know Jesus, we come to know him personally, and we join ourselves to his bride and his mission as a result of that. Jesus saves his followers out of the world into the church and onto mission. A secret faith prevents healthy growth, and it aborts God's mission. Begg says it this way, secrecy will either destroy your discipleship or your discipleship will destroy your secrecy. The latter is what is taking place here. Joseph and Nicodemus could not remain in the shadows while the body of their Lord was desecrated, and so they ensured that Jesus would not hang on a tree, but that he would be given a proper Jewish burial. Which leads us to our third observation, that Jesus is clearly dead. Right? That seems obvious, but it's important because Mark has gone to great lengths to prove just that. Don't bury people alive unless you work for the mob, and even after that, they they stay dead, right? Dead people don't get up. Joseph and Nicodemus are not expecting a resurrection. Jesus was dead. They're not at home eating some chocolate, sipping on some wine by the fire, smiling and quipping to one another, Hey, when Jesus gets up from the dead, that's really going to blow some folks' minds. You know, like, it's going to be awesome. No, they're wrapping his body in a linen cloth, along with spices so that it doesn't stink as it decays. They are burying him because they believe he is going to stay dead. And why wouldn't he? That's what everybody else has done in all of history. Stayed dead. As they bury Jesus, though, their honest miscalculation results in the fulfillment of Isaiah 53, 9, which says this, And they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man he was in his death. See, Jesus is sealed with a stone inside of Joseph's tomb. Matthew tells us that Joseph was, in fact, a rich man. He's sealed in a rich man's tomb. And thus the prophecy is fulfilled. Jesus is the promised one. The fact that Jesus is dead, again, it's clear, but we want to point out the links that Mark has gone to to ensure that everybody understands this fact. The way that Mark reports it is is really significant, the way that he focuses on this burial. He's certifying that Jesus was really dead. Joseph of Arimathea is named here and identified as a witness who actually had Jesus' body wrapped up and sealed in a tomb. We also have a Roman centurion who would be an expert on death. Remember, he could eat a sandwich and stick a spear in a guy's side at the same time, right? It's his nine to five. He's always around death. And so this Roman centurion also bore witness to Jesus' death to Pilate, who would have been the legal authority on the matter. And he, too, declared Jesus dead. And then finally, in verse 47, we haven't got there yet, but we have two women that serve as eyewitnesses to Jesus' burial. And so what we have here are multiple experts, multiple witnesses that are proving Jesus was really dead. That's Mark's point. Jesus is really dead. Let's turn our eyes now to these soon-to-be-surprised women who witnessed everything. Drop back down to verse 39. And when the centurion, who stood facing him, saw that in this way Jesus breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. And look who is there witnessing Jesus' death off in the distance. Verse 40, 
there were also women looking on from the distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James, the younger, and of Yosef and of Salome. And Salome was there also. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. These many faithful women have followed and ministered to Jesus throughout his ministry, throughout the three years. They've followed him. They've been faithful. As I was reading this, I couldn't help but think how many of us owe so much of our spiritual growth to the life and ministry of faithful women. I mean, many churches across the globe have been kept from dissolving and kept faithful to the gospel because of the steadfast and devoted ministry of women like these. I think our church is no different, that we owe much to faithful women who out of a devotion to Christ have sacrificed much for the gospel. And so now on behalf of the fellowship here, to you, faithful women, I say thank you. Three of these faithful women that followed and ministered to Jesus are mentioned by name. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Yosef, and Salome. You'll notice that they are mentioned by name here in verse 40. The Marys are mentioned again in verse 47. And then all three of them show up again in verse 1 of chapter 16. And so you might ask the question, why? We, we know who they are at this point, Mark. Why do you keep giving them shout-outs? There's a method to his madness. As we've said, Mark wants to make plain and clear that Jesus was dead. And so when he lists these names multiple times, he's letting us know that he is re- he's recording a historical account, not writing a legend. The repeated names of these women here are source citations. We could call them footnotes. These women, they, they must have been alive at the time of Mark's writing, or he wouldn't have cited their names repetitively. By including their names, Mark is saying to anybody reading the document, if you want to check out the truth of my story, Go and talk to these three women. They're still alive, and they will substantiate everything that I have said. I mean, the same statement applies to Joseph and to Pilate. Mark is saying, Jesus really was dead, and these people can confirm it. The listing of proper names, which is unusual for Mark, it certifies on the basis of eyewitnesses the veracity of the events described. The authenticity of Mark's account, it's also corroborated by the fact that those who witnessed Jesus' resurrection, well, they're women. Women at this time were looked down on. Their testimony was no good. In fact, Celsus, a Greek philosopher who lived in the second century, he had many arguments against Christianity, uh, one of which was this. He argued that Christianity could not be true because the written accounts of the resurrection are based on the testimony of women. And we all know that women are hysterical, he quipped. And many of his readers agreed. For them, this was a major problem. In ancient societies, women were marginalized. And the testimony of women was never given much credence. You see, if Mark and the others, they'd wanted to create a great hoax by making up the story of Jesus' resurrection, they never would have had women as the ones discovering the empty tomb. Dr. Aiken comments, In Jewish culture of the first century, women were not qualified to be witnesses in a legal proceeding. It is astonishing that the Bible records that women saw the risen Jesus first. 
in the early church, if they were making up a story to persuade people to believe that Jesus rose from the dead, it's inconceivable that they would say women were the first to witness the event. The only reason to do so is that women did, in fact, witness the resurrection first. Don't be fooled, though. Don't be fooled into thinking that these women or anyone else expected the resurrection. That's what Mark's taking us to, the great surprise. Even though Jesus said it would happen, no one believed him. Do you remember back in Mark 9, Jesus tells everybody, hey, I'm going to die, the Son of Man's going to die, and on the third day, he's going to rise again. And then the disciples respond by, quote, keeping the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. It meant he would rise from the dead. But resurrection was so inconceivable to even the disciples that when Jesus says, I'm going to rise from the dead, they talk amongst themselves and say, what does he mean by this? rise from the dead. Someone rising from the dead is foreign to them. Tim Keller writes, the resurrection was as inconceivable for the first disciples, as impossible for them to believe as it is for many of us today. Granted, their reasons would have been different from ours. The the Greeks did not believe in resurrection. In the Greek worldview, the afterlife was liberation of the soul from the body. For them, resurrection of the body would not have ever been part of life after death. As for the Jews, some of them believed in a future general resurrection wherein the entire world would be renewed, but they had no concept of an individual rising from the dead. The people of Jesus' day were no more predisposed to believe in the resurrection than we are. No one is expecting the resurrection, which is why we see these women head to Jesus' grave with their heads hung and their hearts wrung out they consider how to move a stone so that they might anoint Jesus' body with spices. Verse 47, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Yosef, saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? It's early morning. These three women are are headed out to anoint Jesus' body, and they're not in good spirits. They're not saying to one another, how exciting. It's the first Easter. He is risen, sister. Indeed, he is risen. Or he is risen indeed. Like, that's not going on. No, they're in mourning on this morning. They are about as excited to go to Jesus' tomb as you were to go to your first family funeral. There is gloom in the air as they worry about how they will roll back the stone. It is funny how much we worry about silly things like that. It turned out to be of no consequence, though, as they discovered something was off. Verse 4, And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. Go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out, and they fled from the tomb. 
for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Obviously, they broke their silence because Mark's able to record this for us. Just saying. Jesus is not in the tomb. He has risen. Jesus is alive. These women are astonished and they run away from the tomb. This isn't what they expected. This is, it's, it's well, it's, it's impossible. But they can't shake the truth of it. These women are confronted with Jesus' resurrection, with his identity. And so they do what people do throughout Mark when they recognize that Jesus is the God-man. They respond with fear. Everything, every time Jesus does something miraculous in this gospel, people are seized with fear and astonishment. Who then is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? Chapter 4. He cast out demons and the people beg him to leave. Chapter 5. He raised the dead and Mark tells us they were overcome with astonishment. Chapter 5. He walked on water and they were frightened and astonished. Chapter 6. Over and over. Every time deity bursts forth from Jesus, the people are not rejoicing. They are trembling. They're afraid. That's what you do in the presence of God. And here, the greatest miracle of all. And these ladies are seized with fear. They're astonished. They're frightened. But they've got the message. They've got a promise. That Jesus is going to meet them. And so the the first post-cross proclamation of the gospel is given in the former grave of the Savior. Mark, Mark could have added post-resurrection appearances, right? He could have given us the Great Commission or Jesus meeting with Peter. So, so why doesn't he is the question. And I think the answer is this. The resurrection of Jesus is the final guarantee of his faithfulness. Jesus didn't come just to die. He came to resurrect. He came to roll back all the effects of sin and of evil until his kingdom ultimately is brought in in its fullness. The resurrection validates Jesus and it forces us to respond to him. Mark wants us to draw the conclusion that he has argued for since chapter 1, verse 1. That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that that is good news. Mark leaves us confronted with the resurrection so that we might consider the question that permeates his gospel. Who is Jesus? Love how former agnostic Mark Dever talks about his conversion. He says, As a historian, I sought to unearth the truth about Jesus and kept tripping over the resurrection. I finally realized this really happened. It's true. Friends, Christianity is true. Jesus really did rise from the dead. He was no messianic pretender. History has had plenty of those. And if Jesus wasn't who he said he would, he would have died and fallen into the tombs among the forgotten with the rest of them. But what he said is true. And the truth of the resurrection is of supreme and eternal importance. It is the hinge upon which the story of the world pivots. It is the hinge upon which the story of your life pivots. I implore you, turn from your self-trust, from your sin, 
and believe in Jesus. I think we live in a time when it's cool to be spiritual and to be seeking, but it's uncool to ever find anything. A time when it's laudable to have an ever-open mind, but to never close it on anything. I love what uh, Chesterton once said. The point of an open mind is to close it on something. Oh, I pray that you would close it on the truth of Christ. God has placed eternity on your heart, given you longings for perfect justice, blissful relationships, for a satisfying happily ever after. That's why we love happy endings. He's provided you with all the necessary resources to discover the answer to all of your longings. He has revealed himself in the world, in the scriptures, and in the faithful proclamation of his word. Hear and believe. He's given you all the signposts you need to forsake all that you trust in now and place your trust in Him. There is grace enough for you. Anyone can be a disciple of Jesus. A Gentile centurion, a Jewish religious leader, a group of marginalized women, and even a defunct disciple like Peter. I mean, did you capture that note of grace in verse 7? Tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Peter singled out because of his denials. It seems that Jesus anticipates Peter's potential struggle to believe that Jesus could love a turncoat like him. But Jesus, by way of this angel, invites Peter specifically to come with the other disciples to Galilee to meet him. No rebuke. No, hey, you better grovel. Beg me for forgiveness. No, there's no rebuke. There's no distance. There's no grudge. There's no bitterness. There's only grace. Only a loving invitation. Come, meet me in Galilee. Tell them. Anyone can be a disciple One of my favorite testimonies is that of John Newton. Newton was a wicked, slave-trading fiend, a slimy and vile character, a, a true wretch of a man. But the gospel took him and led him to pen these most famous words. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. T'was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. T'is grace hath brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. The Lord has promised good to me. His word my hope secures. He will, he will my shield and portion be as long as life endures. When this flesh and heart shall fail and mortal life shall cease, I shall possess within the veil a life of joy and peace. The earth shall soon dissolve like snow. The sun forbear to shine. But God, who called me here below, will be forever mine. Anyone can be a disciple. Even a wretch like Newton. Even a wretch like me even a wretch like you. If you will hear this good news and believe, 
a life of joy and of peace. And the God of everything will be forever yours. Jesus has secured this great blessing for us. He's secured these great blessings for us by doing for us what he did for Joseph of Arimathea. By taking our place in the grave. Jesus has substituted himself for you on the cross. He's taken the punishment you deserve so that you can enjoy the riches that only he deserves. God has raised Jesus from the dead to prove the acceptability of his sacrifice, to prove his person and his power. This is no fiction, but it is bringing about the happily ever after that we were made for. Jesus' resurrection It begins the great reversal of all evil and points us to his final triumph over sin and suffering. I mean, this is why we look forward to his return and our resurrection with a feverish anticipation. Jesus is redeeming everything that has been broken. Keller continues, Ordinary life is what's going to be redeemed. There's nothing better than ordinary life except that it's always going away and always falling apart. Ordinary life is food and work and chairs by the fire and hugs and dancing and mountains. This world, God loves it so much that he gave his only son so we and the rest of this ordinary world could be redeemed and made perfect. And that's what's in store for us. The resurrection means that we can look forward with hope to the day our suffering will be gone. But it even means that we can look forward with hope to the day our suffering will be glorious. When Jesus in Luke's gospel shows the disciples his hands and his feet, he's showing them his scars. The last time Jesus' disciples saw those scars, they thought they were ruining their lives. The disciples, they they thought they were on a presidential campaign of sorts. They thought their candidate was going to win and they were going to be in his cabinet. And when they saw the nails being driven into his hands and into his feet and the spear going into his side, they believed that those wounds had destroyed their lives. And now Jesus has risen from the dead and he's showing them his resurrected body. He's showing them that his scars are still there. Why is this important? Because now that they understand the scars the sight and the memory of them will increase the glory and the joy of the rest of their lives. Seeing Jesus Christ with his scars reminds them of what he did for them. The scars they thought were ruining their lives actually saved their lives. On the day of the Lord, the day that God makes everything right, the day that everything sad comes untrue, On that day, the same thing will happen to your own hurts and your own sadness. You will find that the worst things that ever happened to you will in the end only enhance your eternal delight. On that day, all of it will be turned inside out and you will know joy beyond the walls of this world. The joy of your glory will be that much greater for every scar you bear. So live in light of the resurrection and in light of the renewal of this world and in light of the renewal of yourself and in light of the glorious, never-ending, joyful dance of grace that continues even now. 
Life that is lived happily ever after is what God has made us for. It's what he's promised and procured for all who will turn from their sins and believe in Jesus. Death is the destiny of every man. But so too is resurrection. Some will be raised and bend the knee to King Jesus in terror as they reap the harvest of their chosen and continued rebellion. And others will delight in eating and drinking at the king's table as they reap the harvest of discipleship. Jesus has guaranteed a happy ending to all who will put their faith in him. He desires that you entrust yourself to him and live happily ever after with him and his people. Anyone can be a disciple of the risen God and King, Jesus. Mark's gospel confronts us with this truth and asks, will you be a disciple? The gospel is true. Every other explanation of life is fiction and ends with inexplicable sorrow. And so I exhort you today, follow Jesus. Be his disciple. The resurrection really happened. Believe the gospel and live happily ever after. I'm going to pray and then uh, some guests of ours are going to come and close us in a hymn of, or a song of response. We sing Amazing Grace. Would you pray with me? Gracious Lord Jesus, we thank you that the resurrection is true and is at the very heart of what we believe. We thank you that uh, we don't have to fear uh, sorrows in this world as if they were the end of all things, but we can trust that you are preparing us for an eternal weight of glory that is beyond all comparison. That you are preparing us for a true happily ever after. Thank you that you work all things together according to your sovereign will and for our good. Help us to trust you. Father, when we are tempted to doubt, tempted to stray, remind us of the cross and show us your resurrection scars once more that we might get on our tiptoes with anticipation and look forward to the glorious eternity that is to come. You are worthy of all praise, worthy of all worship. And so we rejoice now in this circumstance and we commit to rejoice in you in every and every circumstance because we can face anything in this world because we have Christ, our Lord, the King of all, and we trust him. Father, we pray the, these things in your name. Amen.